Dear congregation, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. We have completed our exposition through chapters 1 through 5, and now we'll be beginning our exposition of chapter 6. The title of our sermon this afternoon is His Unbelieving Country, His Unbelieving Country. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we again approach approach unto Thee. Lord, we ask for Thy blessing. Lord, Thou wouldst grant us faith. Thou wouldst help us to see Thee by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. That we would rest in this blessed assurance Thou hast paid for our sins. Thou art the fulfillment of that Paschal Lamb. We now have an eternal covenant of grace in which we partake with Thee by grace through faith. Lord, out of gratitude, help us to obey Thee, to follow Thee, trusting in Thy precious blood to save us. Through all the trials and storms of life, we might look to Thee, Lord Jesus. We might have faith, which Thou hast given us. We might ask for faith, knowing that Thou alone canst calm the seas, still the storm, and say to the storms of our hearts, doubt of unbelief, of sin, peace, Be still. We wish to honor thee in the preaching and the hearing of this sermon. We ask, Holy Spirit, thou wouldst apply this word, thou wouldst help this weak preacher, thou wouldst help these weak children, that we all might benefit greatly. From thy word. We need thee, Lord. Without thee, we can do nothing. Help us to fully lean upon thee in faith and in trust and in joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we will be looking at the first six verses of Mark's Gospel in chapter 6. You're now the word of the Lord, Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. And he, being Jesus, went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. His unbelieving country. Dear congregation, unbelief is the greatest of all sins. In reality, unbelief is the only sin that damns us. As our Lord Jesus said to his disciples at his departure from them, when he sent them out to do gospel ministry in Mark 16, he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. 
And in another place, in John 3.18, the Lord Jesus says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, meaning himself, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice that Jesus does not say, He who repents from all of his known sins shall be damned. He that is baptized not shall be damned. He that attendeth not church shall be damned. He that does not honor the Pope shall be damned. No, he says none of this. Rather, he that believeth not shall be damned. As John Rogers, the Puritan said, which I've been quoting for the past few sermons, it is not the weakness of faith that damns, but the absence of faith that damns. A man may be whatever it is that he is. And yet if he believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be saved. He shall be born again. In the passage before us, which we have read, we have a striking example of unbelief. Jesus had gone to many cities, many towns throughout Judea. He was widely received in those towns. He did much good. Now he has come into his own country, his own fatherland, as the word implies and means. The place where he was raised, among whom, among those whom he was raised. He's back in his hometown, as it were. This place where he was raised. Let us recognize something of great interest about Nazareth. About Nazareth. In no ancient extra-biblical document is the town of Nazareth ever mentioned. It was a small and insignificant town. It had very likely a small population, but our Lord Jesus Christ grew in stature as a man and in stature of knowledge and wisdom before his Father in humble obscurity. Thus the humiliation and meekness of our sweet Savior. Now, this small and obscure town of Nazareth was blessed beyond all towns or places which have ever existed or ever shall exist. The Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, was raised here. He dwelt here for the majority of his earthly life. Never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. For 30 years, the Son of God resided in the town. He went to and fro in the streets. He worked. He saw the people. The people saw him. He lived with them and among them. For 30 years, he walked before God before the eyes of those inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. But it was all lost upon them. It was all lost upon them. They would not believe that one whose face they knew so well and who had lived so long eating, drinking, dressing as they did among them, one who was just like them, had any right to then come in now and claim their attention. From this, we can notice that familiarity often breeds indifference. Familiarity often breeds indifference, even in matters of religion, even in matters of our faith and Christianity. It causes men to lose their first love if they guard not against it. Familiarity breeds indifference. These Inhabitants of Nazareth knew Jesus well and with greater familiarity than any others upon the earth. Yet we read that they were offended at him. They were offended at him. Their familiarity, rather than bringing them to receive all the more readily Jesus, brought them to actually reject him. Brought them to reject him. Rather than giving them greater assurance in his words and in his deeds, it caused them to be offended by him. They did not take him at his word, but doubted the testimony he gave, both in word and in deed, about himself. Now, greater familiarity should lead us to trust, should lead us to trust, to give the benefit of the doubt, to assume the best. But here it leads to suspicion and disdain. Their issue was not simply that they knew him too well. It was not that they knew him too well. 
but, they did not, but that they did not know him as he was. Meaning, it was the nature of his being that offended them. It was that which they did not receive, that he was the son of God. Their problem was unbelief, not over-familiarity. Now, let us notice three characteristics of unbelief in our text. First, unbelief always has a ready excuse. Unbelief always has a ready excuse. That's number one. Number two, unbelief impedes grace. Unbelief impedes grace. Number three, unbelief must be constantly and carefully guarded against. Unbelief must be constantly and carefully guarded against. First, unbelief always has a ready excuse. Now, unbelief does not arise from any problem or any want outside of itself. Any want or problem outside of itself. It comes from within. Unbelief. Man has no excuse not to fulfill his duty to love, to honor, to serve, and to believe upon God. He has no excuse for his sin. Yet, the nature of the sin of unbelief is always to make an excuse. Notice, unbelief makes excuse for its own existence. Unbelief makes excuses for its own existence. Unbelief leads a person to excuse their very lack of faith, the very unbelief which they have. The unbeliever always has some good reason for his rejection of the gospel, does he not? He heaps up one sin upon another, first by not believing upon God, and then secondly, by excusing that very unbelief. But do not misunderstand this sin of unbelief. Do not misunderstand it. Its root is not even doubt. It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the root of unbelief. It rejects God's way for its own. God's way for its own. It rejects the righteousness that is by faith in Christ for its own righteousness. For its own righteousness. If a man were to find... Let's just say, if a man were to find some real excuse for not believing, then he has found a savior from the wrath of God outside of Christ. He has found a savior from the wrath of God outside of Christ by finding a true excuse for his unbelief. A sinner who has a legitimate excuse for unbelief should be sure to go and write it down immediately. Nay, he should... Etch it into a golden plaque and hang it in his wall. Hang it upon his wall in his house. That all who come within his home might look upon it. He might show it to them. And they could rejoice and share in his joy that he has found such a savior. He should bring it with him when he is brought before the judgment seat of the God of glory. The Lord of glory on judgment day. And then he should proudly present that plaque upon which his excuse for unbelief is written to the Lord of glory for his justification. He has found a savior outside of faith in Christ. He has found a salvation by unbelief. And this legitimately. But we know that no such excuse exists. There is no legitimate reason for unbelief. We shall demonstrate this by examining the two most common forms of unbelief or atheism. Intellectual atheism and practical atheism. First, we shall examine the so-called intellectual unbelief or intellectual atheism. This is one that makes an excuse for its unbelief by pointing to the mind, the intellect. This kind of unbelief intellectual atheism, excuses itself by a supposed lack of evidence or a lack of proof upon which it may justify having faith in God. It conjectures that it does not believe and that it cannot believe. 
Why? Because faith goes against reason for such an atheist. It goes against reason. It goes against evidence. Such wicked sinners whom we've all met and whom some of us even used to be, me, will say, if there was evidence for the existence of God, if there was some sort of sufficient and satisfactory proof that faith in Christ Jesus for salvation was warranted, then I would gladly believe. I would believe if it was true. I would believe if there was evidence. But in my mind, there is no evidence that such a God exists or that such a salvation is necessary. If my mind was given sufficient proof, then I would acquiesce in the truth of the matter. However, we must know that this is not only foolishness when they speak this way. It's not only foolishness, but it's great wickedness. They're not a victim of lack of evidence. It is not valid, no matter how loudly or incessantly they say it. It's not valid. It is only a weak excuse for self-righteousness and for the indulgence which they wish to have and regularly practice in sinful, lustful passions. The sin of unbelief is the most wicked of all. That was a consensus of our divines. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, quote, He that doth not believe there is a God is more vile than the devil. To deny there is a God is a sort of atheism that is not to be found in hell even, end quote. The inspired words of the Apostle James corroborate with this. Quote, the devils believe and tremble, the Apostle James writes in James 2.19. The danger of intellectual atheism is that it assuages and it soothes the sinner. It emboldens him in his sin since he thinks himself to be wise, even more wise than God himself. He supposes that his intellect has not been sufficiently appealed to and that his wicked heart has nothing to do with the matter. It's a matter of intellect. And his mighty intellect has not been met with sufficient evidence. It has nothing to do with his unbelief. It has nothing to do with his wicked heart. If there was only proof, then he would believe. Many have told us this. I used to say this to Christians myself. But in doing this, they set their mind as God. Their mind is God. For them, this false God of theirs must be served. It must be satisfied. No other God should remove this God from its place and take its place. Even the true and living God. However... By the testimony of Scripture, we know that this wretch is not wise. Rather, he is a fool, and the worst sort of fool. A fool which thinks himself wise. A fool that is headstrong and determined in sin. The psalmist writes, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And what are his next words? What does he connect with this unbelief? He continues on in Psalm 14, verse 1. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. So their vain excuse is really no legitimate excuse. It has nothing to do with proof. It has nothing to do with evidence. It has nothing to do with being intellectual and having intellectual satisfaction in a proposition. Rather, their unbelief is only, only an excuse to continue on in sin. That's all it is. Puritan William Jenkins said, unbelief is the shield of every sin. Unbelief is the shield of every sin. No amount of proof. None. No amount of proof or evidence for God's existence, for God's kingship, could ever turn an intellectual atheist to God, ever. Mm. It is a falsehood to say that it could do so. The problem is not evidence, but wickedness, unregeneration, darkness of mind. Paul says in Romans 1, 19 and 20, that which, may, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Without excuse. They have sufficient evidence all around them, these intellectual atheists. They have it in creation. The fact that there is creation, the fact that they have arms, if they have arms, is proof that God exists. That's evidence. Psalm 19 says this. They have the evidence that God exists in their conscience. They do not actually have any legitimate excuse for their unbelief. Yet unbelief always tries to make excuses. If God himself would come down from heaven and sit with these intellectual atheists and explain, as he sat there, all the evidences for his own existence right before them, they would still not believe. In fact, they would probably try to murder him, as they did the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the express image of his person. C.S. Lewis said that hell is locked from the inside. The sentiment is true. If there was only evidence, I would believe. Is their way of saying, I hate God, and I will never come to him. Never, never, never. My sin is lovely. It is sweet to me. God is loathsome and repugnant. Not only do they have creation itself, not only do they have their own conscience, but also the testimony of the Holy Scriptures is upon the earth and readily accessible to most people. They hate God. That's not that they lack evidence. The inhabitants of Nazareth had all the evidence they needed before them, not only in creation, not only in their conscience, but unlike any others on earth who have ever lived, they had watched the perfect conduct, the perfect piety of Jesus himself all of his life. Moreover, they now had his direct teaching and with their own eyes were witnessing the demonstration of his power and miracles before their very eyes. For they they acknowledge this. They say, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which has given him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Despite all of this, they can only indignantly ask in unbelief, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon are not his sisters here with us. They were offended at his person, who he was, namely God manifest in the flesh. It is not that they were without sufficient evidence. So too, dear congregation, let us not make poor attempts at doubt with the excuse of intellectual atheism. No amount of evidence is needed, especially for us as Christians. We have it all. Our minds have been enlightened. Our hearts enlivened. We now live unto God. Rather, let us trust in him whom we know. Casting ourselves upon him in faith, we have the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit also. Bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, Romans 8, 16. We have the scriptures We have no excuse for doubt, even less than the intellectual atheist. May God keep us from that wickedness. Yet another kind of unbelief also abounds, even among professing Christians. Namely, practical atheism. So we had intellectual atheism, now we have practical atheism. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, in his foundational work upon the attributes and existence of God, wrote, quote, Men have atheistical hearts... Men may have atheistical hearts without atheistical heads. This kind of unbelief, practical atheism, is arguably the most dangerous of the two. For a man may think himself a Christian because his mouth and mind do not reject God. Yet the words of Christ apply to him. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Mark 7, 6. They profess themselves Christian, and they think themselves so. But in their heart and practices, they think, feel, and live as if there is no God. That's practical atheism. They, too, only use unbelief as a shield for their sin. 
when the time comes to pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus, when the time comes to trust in the Lord for provision, for assurance and faith, when tempted by Satan, when convicted by the sermon or the book, they have a ready excuse that still keeps them from God. We often hear their excuses. And such excuses rise up even in our own hearts and minds. One might say, if only I felt, if only I felt, if only I could sense the presence of God, if only I had some experience of his love, if only I could feel that my sin was truly as bad as I am told, if only I could feel that Jesus was a savior, then I would believe upon him. Then I would trust him. Then I would come to him. Then I would deny myself and follow him in obedience, love, and faith. Well, their unbelief makes them think that they have a good excuse. Namely, that God has not made their hearts to feel. So they don't have to love him in return. But where do they suppose they might get this feeling heart? This heart of flesh that desires God and obeys him if they refuse to come to him. We certainly know not from whence they might get such feeling. Others might say something to the effect of, It's not my fault that I neglect God. I have not the conviction to follow him. I feel no urgency. The means of grace have no effect upon my resolve. Therefore, I am excused. It's not my fault. Still others tell us that they would serve God if only they had opportunity to do so. They lack opportunity. I would come to church if I could, but I'm quite busy. My duties permit me no extra time for religious matters. I must work. I must care for the children at home. I must manage and steward my goods. They give the same words which those gave in the parable. Wherein a a man made a great supper, and he invited all of his closest friends. In Luke 14, we read about this, and we read, And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come we see also then that their invitation was revoked. We have heard many say that once their life is less busy, once things are in order, once things calm down and they're, and they're weak, then they should give proper attention to religion. Ah, but this is only practical atheism, dear congregation, a shield for sin. Another class of practical atheists tell us that if they only had some sign from God, some sign from God, then they would come to faith in him. Then they would come to him in faith. Or then they would be strengthened in their Christian profession. At that point they would be, and take it seriously. Once they receive the sign, at that time they will take God at his word. At that time they will rest in him. Well, many seek in vain for such a sign. And they shall never have it. They shall never find that sign. The rich man in hell lifted up his eyes to Abraham. And he pleaded that Abraham would send Lazarus to his father's house saying, I have five brethren. Send him that he may testify unto them. Lest they also come into this place of torment. Send them a sign. And what was Abraham's response? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This new resident of hell then said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. If one went to them from the dead. But Abraham was ready with an answer to this practical atheist, wasn't he? And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one raised from the dead. They must listen to Moses and the prophets. A sign will never be sufficient to one who is waiting to come to God, waiting to believe upon Jesus, waiting to truly serve God in their Christian life until they have a sign. 
The scriptures are the true guide of all religion. The true mother of faith. The professor who will neglect the sufficient testimony of scripture with the excuse that he has not received some miraculous sign from God is simply a practical atheist. That is all. His unbelief is garbed. Listen to this. His unbelief is garbed in the pretense that he wishes to have some closeness with God mediated to him through a sign. But it is only a poor, thin covering for the barrenness of his faith. Those of Jesus' fatherland here in Nazareth were practical atheists if there ever were any. They made excuse for their unbelief. They knew him too well. Never before had he made such claims, done such deeds. Why should they think them of any value now? It's probably a phase. They'll get over it. Unbelief also makes excuse for sin. More briefly, we'll look at this. We see that unbelief also excuses sins. As doubting Lot told the angels of the Lord when fleeing Sodom, I cannot escape to the mountain lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. So too, unbelief leads one to say, is not this sin a little one? Is it not just a white lie? Is it not just lusting in my heart? Is it not just hating my brother, my neighbor, and my heart? I've not acted upon any of this. I haven't harmed anyone. It is no great sin. Nothing to concern myself with. But the smallest sin will send a man to hell as truly as the greatest of sins. This is unbelief to think this way. Secondly, unbelief impedes grace. Unbelief impedes grace. God is gracious to those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In our passage, we see that Jesus could there in Nazareth do no mighty work. What was the cause? Why couldn't he do a mighty work? Did the reason lie in Christ's own inability to work mighty deeds? Was he having an off day? No, for he had done many wonders elsewhere, everywhere he went during his ministry. What was the reason then? It was their unbelief. It was their faithlessness. The gracious working of God is indivisibly connected with faith, dear congregation. The gracious working of God is indivisibly connected with faith. They are united. The means of grace are received by faith and worked through faith. A multitude, you recall, of Israelites came out of Egypt with Moses. A multitude. They saw the power of God demonstrated. They had sufficient proof and reason to believe upon Jehovah. But many who came out did not enter into God's rest. They did not enter into the promised land, did they? The gospel was preached unto them, but they did not receive it. Why? We read in Hebrews that they did not enter the rest because the gospel was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. Hebrews 4.2 There are many, many people in the past, now living and who shall live, that think there shall some be saved, even possibly themselves, even if they don't believe. Even if they don't believe. But Jesus is completely and utterly unable to save those who do not believe. Jesus is unable to save those who do not believe. The gospel must be mixed with faith. That is, it must be received by faith. None have ever, ever been saved in any other way than by believing. Men are saved by grace through faith. Just as none has ever been saved outside of faith in Christ... There has never, ever, ever been one penitent sinner who wanted to believe, who wanted to come to Jesus, who desired to believe upon him unto salvation, who has been lost. Not one. That is great news. 
No believer has ever died and gone to hell. Unbelief is the lock upon the chest of grace. And faith is the key that opens it. Jesus was unable to do many mighty works in Nazareth. That is, not as many as in other places. Not as many as in other places. There was still some good done. He laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. There was no raising of the dead. There was no casting out of demons, but only a few sick folk were healed. Certainly, this is a glorious demonstration of grace and power, though less in number than in other places. The harvest was not as great. The harvest was not as great in this place because this place was a place of general unbelief. Unbelief is suicidal. It's suicidal. And it's even against all notions of self-interest, isn't it? It is only we who suffer from unbelief. God is not lessened. God is not changed. He remains the same. If we read our Bibles, dear congregation, but we do not have faith in what we read, we don't mix it with faith. We indeed exercise the mind and the brain, but our heart and our spiritual hands and feet remain the same. If we come to the Lord's table but do not exercise faith in Christ in doing so, we will benefit no more than when we are eating a handful of pretzels in the the lobby. If we bow the head in prayer, but ask not in faith, we shall receive nothing of the Lord. If we labor to turn from sin, but do not apply the power of God by faith, we indeed may become more moral, but not more holy. Gospel promises must be mixed with gospel faith. Gospel promises must be mixed with gospel faith. Faith. Faith is the clarion call of this hour and of every hour. Faith in Christ. Not faith in ourselves. Not faith in methods. Not even faith in means. But faith in Christ. James tells us, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. That is, we ask not in faith that God would do great things for us and in us and through us. But we ask that, he says, we may consume that which we receive upon our own lusts. James 4, 3. Now, recall the rich young ruler that we read of in the Gospels. What was his problem? What was his true problem? Was it not unbelief also? Did he not go away sad because he lacked faith? Lacking faith that Jesus would sufficiently satisfy the heart place that those riches now occupied? Nothing makes one more despondent, more sad, more depressed than unbelief. Why? Because it severs a human being from hope, from God. Notice also the great evil of unbelief. The great evil of unbelief. It's not a small sin. Whatever Lot might have thought. Unbelief is, the, is one of the only things that we see Jesus in the Gospels wondering at, marveling at, is unbelief. We read that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief in our passage. He was amazed. He was disturbed by it. J.C. Ryle said that unbelief is so suicidal and unreasonable a sin that even the Son of God regards it with surprise. One of the gloomiest sayings of Christ is when he asked this, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will surely and very shortly deliver his people and take upon them, take them up where he is, to be where he is. He'll do this shortly. Yet when he comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Will there only be a small handful? Now, as believers, we shall surely be with him. We know that. We rest in that. It's our blessed hope. But will we go with him, strong in faith, or limping in doubt, lacking assurance? Shall we be found doing great things for God, or serving our own desires, tending to our own interests? Something we should think about. I often look at the great Christians of the past, these great men and women, 
throughout church history. And I also look to the great Christians of the present, great people of faith. I long to be as them. I desire their faith. I desire the closeness with God that they exude. I desire to serve him as they do. I desire their attainments. I long for their attainments in piety and religion. I desire to do the great things that they have done for God. But then I think to myself, I think to myself, that too could be me. That could be me. There's nothing hindering me from having more of God except myself. That be it. We too, dear congregation, can place further measures of faith in God. We can ply the mercy seat for greater measures of faith, greater measures of grace, of spiritual power, and of sanctification, greater love for Him. He can only do a few works in us, only heal a few of our weaknesses because we lack faith. And we have not faith because we ask not for it. Nor do we earnestly seek as we should or are even able to. We're able to go get more faith from him because he will give it to us. We can't make it ourselves, but it's free. It's freely available. We too can be like these great men and women of the past. We do not set our minds upon Christ, but rather upon earthly things. This is what keeps us from faith. The words of Christ to Thomas serve as the antidote for our unbelief also. When he said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger, behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. What did did you notice there? There's a command. He commands Thomas, not just to put his hand in fingers places. He says, believe, be not faithless. Faith is a command given to us by Jesus Christ. Let us then therefore lay hold of Christ by faith. Thirdly, last, unbelief must be constantly and carefully guarded against. Carefully and constantly guarded against. Since unbelief is so great and evil, and because it is so dangerous to unbelievers and believers alike, It must be something we are on guard against as Christians. First, we will look at an evidence that it is a constant danger to be avoided by us. And then we will look at some general principles for combating unbelief drawn from Christ's actions in our passage. Unbelief is a constant temptation. And more so to those who have much grace. Unbelief is more of a temptation to those who have much grace. Faithlessness is a native evil of the heart of man. It is present with man from the time he is born. Yet it is often even more prevalent within the believer. Why? For just as weeds grow more rampantly in good soil, so too this noxious plant of unbelief, this temptation, is always prone to sprout up in the believer who is in good soil. The inhabitants of Nazareth lay open to this danger all the more, did they not? For they had greater acquaintance with Jesus. His presence had become commonplace to them. His presence had become common to them. It was of no extraordinary value. Those who have the most acquaintance with God will be judged more severely for neglecting it. For neglecting it. They will receive more stripes. This is the danger of spiritual and physical blessings from God. There's a danger to it. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required, said Jesus. Now, as American Christians, we are in great danger of unbelief. We've seen it. We must all the more carefully guard against it. It must be our constant work. How do we do this? By putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision For the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. What country on earth, really in history, has been given more? What country has been given more? More physical blessings, more monetary blessings, 
and especially more spiritual blessings. We are gospel-saturated as a country, always have been. Truth-saturated. Yet what country has spurned God's blessings more? Jesus marvels at our unbelief. Matthew Henry wrote, The unbelief of those that enjoy the means of grace is a most amazing thing. Because it's absurd. It makes no sense. Unless you understand the nature of sin, the wickedness of man, and the temptation of Satan. That which should lead us, as Christians who have been given so much grace, to be more faithful than any people on earth often serves as a snare for us to fall into unbelief. Religion becomes commonplace. It's of no great significance. Urgency is suppressed and discounted. We are prone to resemble those whom Peter makes reference to, who say that there's no no reason to be anxious about faith since all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, he writes. They say something like, things have been moving steadily forward and shall continue to do so. We can get around to our faith. We can pursue separation from the world, seriousness and Christianity at another time. Things are really not that pressing. I am a believer and I know that I'm saved. But there are many earthly blessings to enjoy. Many earthly blessings to enjoy in. I can redeem some of my time I have no need to redeem all of it. But Peter warns that judgment shall swallow these up when they least expect it. Let us as Christians be nothing like them. We don't have to be anything like them. We shouldn't be anything like them. There's nothing more urgent, dear congregation. Nothing we should be more anxious over than our standing with Christ. Not even just salvation, but how we serve him now. There's nothing worth giving ourselves, our whole selves, to more than Christ. Nothing. Let us be serious about our faith. Let us guard against apathy, which is only a symptom of unbelief. Apathy is a symptom of unbelief. Christ calls us what? Further up and further in. Further up and further in. The key to avoiding legalism then. In pursuing more of Christ, casting off more of our sin, while still being very serious about our growth in faith. The way to avoid legalism, while being very serious about our faith, being diligent to put off the things of the world, being diligent in crucifying sin and repenting of sin, is to say to yourself this. Others may, I may not. Others may, I may not. Let others absorb their time with earthly trifles. Let them give their time to permissible, permissible indulgences. But as for you, dear Christian, you go up, you go in, you imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. This was the mindset of Paul, who said, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Not that he was some perfect Christian. Paul wasn't some perfect Christian. Not that he was without sin. Not that he loved God exactly as he should. But what did Paul do? He forgot those things which were behind. His false religion. His false righteousness. His sin. His hindrances. His earthly pleasures. Even those earthly pleasures that were permissible. They weren't sinful. Yet he left them all behind and he pressed on toward the prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. That fills us with joy, or it should. He reached forth. He longed to attain. Paul here imbibes and breathes out and in the spirit of David who said in the psalm, As the heart, the deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So the question really is, how do we, how do we work this out? I'm going to give you a list of things that you should think about and do 
in your own personal life. But I think it helps to think of it like this. You're allowed to do this or that. You're allowed to. But we have to ask, why would I not rather do more for my faith? Why would I not rather do more for Christ? Why would I rather have more of the world and less of Jesus? It may not be sin. It may not be sin. But is it the best? Is it fulfilling our chief end? Does it most glorify Christ? Does it lead us to enjoy him more? But unbelief or practical atheism manifested in apathy and lack of urgency quenches this desire. It quenches this desire for more of God. Hence our need to be watchful. Even myself. I was listening to a podcast this week about some Christians that are suffering persecution in Nigeria right now. Horrible, horrible persecution by some radical Muslims. Horrible persecution. Unspeakable persecution, things being done to them. They will walk miles and miles and miles to go to church. Yet there's some days where I think about getting in my posh car with air conditioning. And I'm like, but it's 20 minutes away. It, it'll take me 20 minutes to go preach the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ to fellow believers. What a burden. Fool. Now, what are some principles which we can employ in combating unbelief? which we can draw from the actions of Christ in our passage, briefly. First, Christ took no personal offense at their lack of faith. And his response, he said, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. It was not unexpected to him. Of course. Of course they reject him. It was shocking, but it was not unexpected. They had grown too familiar with him. Even his doctrine and the doctrine's confirmation by miracles could not lead them, could not even move them to have faith. Dear congregation, we too can be rejected, and we often are by unbelievers. We are rejected. They want nothing to do with our doctrine. They want nothing to do with our God, our message, and sometimes even our own person. They want nothing to do with us. They spurn us. This is especially common if we have unbelieving family. And it makes it even more sharp, particularly painful, when it is coming from close family and friends. Those whom we love deepest and whom know us best. We think, surely those closest to me will allow me a word with them. Makes sense. But they reject it. This can tempt us to wax dull and our urgency, to wax dull and our passion for the gospel, to be discouraged and give place to unbelief. That's real. But we must stand strong. We must look to Christ, who also suffered under the exact same rejection here in our passage. Our great high priest has himself suffered being tempted so that he can now not only sympathize with us, but is also able to succor or help us when we are tempted. Next, another principle. We see that Jesus still did some good. He still did some good. He did what he could. He was always about serving his father. Even when he was met with opposition, even when he was met with faithlessness, he still did what he was able to do unto those who were willing Though he could not do as great of wonders as he did elsewhere, yet he could still heal a few sick folk. Believer, you can always do something for God, no matter how small. You can always be praying, and you should always be praying, for open doors, opportunities to serve him, opportunities for the gospel. But even when you are only met with opposition and unbelief and rejection, you can still do something. You can still do something. Can you not pray? I think you can. You can pray for those who reject you. You can pray for those who reject the message. 
You can live by example before them. You can love them and truly care for their person and show the love of Christ unto them. As Paul Washer has said in evangelism, it's been so helpful to me since I suffer from a kind of spirit like this, that I'm passionate about the gospel, sharing the gospel to people, but I don't really care past that. Because this is the most important thing. I don't care what they want to talk about outside of this. And he said that he was sharing the gospel once. He was evangelizing, handing out tracts. And he came up to a guy and he handed him a track. The guy took it, looked up at Paul and said, do you care about me or are you just trying to win me? Will you be my friend? Will you be with me? And he said he was cut to his heart because he didn't want to be his friend. He was just trying to win him. Mm. And loving people where they're at as people, as whole people, not just the soul, but the person, the mind, the body. This often will open up the door for the gospel. The whole gospel is for the whole man. So in evangelism, they reject the gospel for their soul. We can still love them as image bearers. Next, Jesus persevered, did he not? He went around about the village's teaching, we read. He was rejected in his own country, his own fatherland, but he didn't give up. He moved on to the next place. You may not be able to do much for God in one place, but you can certainly do something somewhere. Your family may reject the gospel you bring them, but will your neighbors? Your coworkers? Will your friends? Will the man on the street corner reject you? You must find out. Continue going about. Continue serving God. Jesus told his disciples this, that when they were rejected in one town, they were to shake off the very dust from their feet for a testimony against them and then go on to the next place. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Continue on in the work which God has given you to do. I am always amazed, always amazed by some of the doors which God opens for you all that I hear about from you. Amazed by the resourceful ways that you're enabled to share the gospel. Continue. As Spurgeon always said, onward, Christian soldier, serve thy king. Lastly, Come to recognize that our head, our head, is not the cause of our unbelief, of our doubt. It's not our head. The heart, the heart, not the head, is the seat of all unbelief's power. It is neither the want of evidence nor the difficulties of Christian doctrine that make men unbelievers. It is the want of the will to believe. They have no desire to believe. They love sin. They are wedded to this world. In this state of mind, in this state of mind, they never lack some phony reasons to confirm their will and their sin. The humble, childlike heart is the heart that believes. Is the heart that believes. The heart that our Heavenly Father wants from us and in us. Not head, heart. We doubt God most when we love him least. We doubt God most when we love him least. We demonstrate our love to God through believing. Unbelief serves to blot out our love, does it not? Therefore, let us guard our hearts by asking, what do I hold my affections? What do I hold in my affections above God? What have I allowed to seize his rightful place on the throne of my heart? What has engaged most of my time? What is engaging most of my time, most of my thoughts, most of my delights? Cultivate a love for God. Attend the means of grace. Improve them. Improve them. Be not unbelieving, but rather believing. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we again come before thee. We thank Thee for this opportunity. Lord, we pray that would impress truth upon our heart, some truth from this sermon, some truth from Thy Word. That would help us to root out by Thy power, by Thy wisdom, and by Thy grace, 
doubt and unbelief in our hearts. We need thee, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.